Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Disc Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, violinist and multifaceted career entertainer and musician, Natalie McMaster. Natalie is one of Canada's preeminent fiddlers with a long list of accomplishments. We'll be talking music, travels, the business of music, the life of a career entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about life in the music business, touring, writing, recording, family, and much more that we'll get into in our discussion. And so thanks for joining me today, Natalie. How are you? I'm great, Dan. How are you? Good. And you're an East Coast. I read here you're an East Coast girl from Cape Breton and, and Troy, Nova Scotia. Yep, that's correct. Yes. And uh, you've stayed there. You didn't. You didn't move on from there. That's your home. That's your home base. No, I moved up to Ontario twenty years ago when I married Danelle Leahy. Well, I did see that, but then for some reason I thought that you were back uh, in Cape Breton. But no, you live in in the Toronto area. The oh, Peterborough way. Yes. Okay. I'm from Guelph originally, so I had lots of family around there. Still do. My husband went to university in Guelph. Oh, there you go. It's. Uh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. And then, uh, so when you were growing up, obviously you did the, the East Coast thing. You had lots of family influence and music everywhere. And, and did you have any formal training as well? A little bit. Um, not overly formal, but I did take lessons for a couple of years from Stan Chapman, who was a well-known instructor yeah. down in the, in the East. And uh, it was a little more casual than than what my kids are going through now with Royal Conservatory. But it was definitely more official than you know just lessons from dad in the kitchen right yeah i think that's uh, one of the interesting things about music is you know you try to make it fun right and when you grow up in a sort of a family situation there's music everywhere music is just fun it's not like one of your classes at school where you're learning to play piano or you're learning the, the formal part of it you're learning the fun part of it first i guess absolutely absolutely yeah. and boy oh boy do i ever see how important that is that is so important to keep Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just especially now raising kids, they have to discover the joy of it. Well, I think that's right. I mean, my daughter came back from piano lessons one time crying and I went yeah. to the teacher and, and I said, well, my daughter came home from her lesson crying. She goes, well, she didn't learn her scales properly and stuff. And I said, you're teaching her to hate the instrument. <laughs> it's so. so true. I see it all the time. I, I don't understand it. I don't know how people can continue when the focus is memorization of scales and things like that. I'm like, no, that's, that's not music when you're a kid. That's just, that's just more memorizing and practicing. Yeah. Like, where's the music? Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. you want it, you're more motivated to practice if you're playing a, a melody, something you can sing with. Well, of course, and, and like you did yourself and, and I did, you, know, you learn a few notes, you learn a few chords, and you have fun with them, and then you add to that, and then you learn why they make sense yeah. together, and you just sort of put it together, but it's all in the context of the joy yeah. of doing it. Yeah, yeah. Now, as I talk, it's the big talk. I don't want to discredit all those great teachers out there who are teaching those scales and do have a way of teaching those important things with a nice flare of some sort that keeps the kids entertained but we've had um both sides of the spectrum you know so Mm -hmm. i'm seeing firsthand the different what it produces you know yeah very very good yeah no i think that's important and and there's nothing certainly nothing wrong but i always the way that i always put it is that music is both an art and a science but the science serves the art not the other way around well said well said as long as the teachers can understand that. And, and like my mom was a classical piano player, but she was back in the day when you got your knuckles wrapped with a ruler for not having them yeah. high enough on the piano. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, how did she stick with it, you know? Well, she didn't. She ended up just not even enjoying it. She could, You could put a piece of music in front of her and she could play it very well. But the joy yeah. was the joy was gone. So anyway, I just yeah. uh, I like that. Um, it's funny because uh, I'd heard a number of times that the people in Cape Breton were the nicest people in the world. And then I was taking my kids to school one day years ago, and and the crossing guard happened to be from Cape Breton because I was talking to him, and I asked him that question. I said, "Is that true? And if so, why?" So I would ask you that question: Are the people in Cape Breton the nicest people in, on earth? And if so, why? You know I been to a lot of great places in the world and I always remark on the great people you know that that are all over the place so Cape Breton definitely has them there's no question I mean um, you know they're, they're, they're as nice as any people you'll meet and why is that the case I think there's a lot to be said for working hard in life and appreciating appreciating many things um, Cape Bretoners, so you can work hard in life and be bitter, or you can work hard in life and be a really nice person mm-hmm. because you have, you know, just an appreciation for anything, anything that you have, anything that you own, anything that you see, you see more gifts in other people, you know, and I, um, yeah. And also too, I mean, our faith, we're, we're very faith filled. Yeah. And so that guides our, our moral compass. And there's a very, very, um, I guess a, a, just a way of life there where people are very charitable. Yeah. They just have charity just at the heart of, of everything they do. Yeah, nice. And and his answer was, was very similar, of course. He said that we, we all worked together. We knew our neighbors. We helped one another. It was just a real community feel. And, of course, I live on the West Coast. I mean, yeah. I, I know some of my neighbors, but it's just not that way. You know, everyone lives their own yeah. life. Yeah, well, you know, the tide's turning, right? Like, I mean, the last, you know, just, just, yeah. Like, the, when I say the tide's turning, I just mean, like, we're in the modern era, and sure, people don't need each other as much. I mean, no. the type of needing is, is more the days when your neighbor had something you wanted, and they had you had something they wanted. No. But, you know, with people, like, we live in a farm, you buy your own tractor, and you do your own Right. You do your own thing, so and also people are kind of shy. They don't impose on someone else. So you kind of have to be self-sufficient. But yeah. who knows what the future holds? It, it's just that certainly um, those values have have stayed strong in Cape Breton. Well, and you obviously took them and translated them into your life and your music and everything else, right? Like the the yeah. community values and and the music community too, right? You you were tied in with the Rankin family and some of the other players that the Ashley McIsaac and, and and those people as well, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. And there is a great music community down there, as as everyone knows. And then for you growing up, I I suspect you had no sort of defining moment. You just kind of emerged. The music just sort of flowed from your from your youth into your early adulthood and then into your adulthood was there any defining moment for you no there wasn't but there were a lot of moments that were memorable like when i signed my first record deal that was a big that was a big day um making my first recording i was 16 i think my record deal was when i was 25 yeah um or maybe 23 i can't quite remember no i think it was 25 and um you know playing carnegie hall for the first time yeah the Hollywood Bowl, traveling to Japan and New Zealand and nice. Antarctica and crazy places and yeah. um, doing collaborations with, you know, um, well, I'm, I opened for Santan- Carlos Santana. Those, those times in life when you get to collaborate or, or open for or work with 
um, other artists who are yeah. big in the industry. Those are, I'll never forget those moments. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's lots of moments like that, but you're right when you say, as far as my career, it just kind of grew and grew and grew and there was no defining moments, but there were lots of great moments along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I read here, you have two brothers, right? There was three of you correct, in the family. So, so I was curious about that because, you know, you sort of emerged as, as the one who pursued music and stuff from the pack of the three of you. And then I thought about that as far as your own kids go too. Like, did you have more desire? You just, how did you emerge from your siblings? More drive, more natural talent, more feel, more love of the music? I wouldn't say more drive. Uh, my, my, my brothers had drive for other things, hmm. but uh, I just, I don't know. I, like, they're musical. Uh, my mom and dad didn't have instruments for us. Like, there was a big full-size fiddle in our house, but I was like, you know, little girl. Yeah. Three, four, five, six, seven. At those times, there was no awareness that kids could play an instrument, like, at those young ages. So, you know, I never had a fiddle that fit me. And then when I was nine, a relative gave my dad a fiddle. Hmm. Uh, it was a three-quarter-size fiddle, so it fit me. You know, I was getting bigger, and the fiddle was a little smaller, so it just came at the right time. Yeah. My brothers, yeah, they just... I don't know. They just never expressed an interest. Although my older oldest brother, when he was 16, he started playing fiddling guitar and he got into it pretty heavily for about three years and then he quit. Hmm. He didn't just lost his interest. I don't really know why he says he was more, when people find out that you can play, they want you to play. And that's the part that scared him was playing <laughs> for people. Yeah. And, uh, he just let it get the best of him and he just decided to not, not be in well, the position. And the reason I ask that is because most kids try an instrument. I mean, it, it would be rare for people not to try, yeah. but then most of them just sort of let it go after a while. And then I wondered about that with, mm-hmm. with your kids, cause you have a big family, right? Seven kids from, from what I see. And yep. they all play, but th- there would be some from them that would emerge into the music and others would say, well, you know, I want to, I want to do something else. Do you see that in your kids? Yeah, it's starting a little bit. Yep. Yep. They're still pretty young, but our oldest is 16. She's yeah. definitely taking to the fiddling and the piano hard. Like there's no one I've ever seen want to be more of a musician than her. Okay. Um, and then my next boy is incredibly talented, but not necessarily motivated for music as much as he is with sports. So we'll see where that goes. Um, or maybe they're both the same. I don't know, but there's a strong, he just loves soccer. He loves it as much as I've ever seen anyone love anything. There you go. Like it just, it, it causes him tears, like, like of joy to think, like he's just so loves the sport so much. And then. Uh, my daughter, Claire, she's a great singer and she plays fiddle and piano as well. I don't know. She's still, I'm not sure. She enjoys singing the most, but we'll see where, where that goes. She's very, she loves animals and I, she's mentioned about being a vet. So maybe that's where her passion is. I'm not sure. Julia also loves to sing, but she's our little actress and who Mm -hmm. knows where that leads. She's not necessarily so much inclined for instruments, although she does play. Yeah. My boy, Alec, seems to be very taken with the drums. So, yeah. you know, he's got that going on, but he's still too young to want to practice. Right. See the benefit in it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the, the other two are still too young to tell. Right. 
Yeah, fair enough. And, and, and I guess the reason I ask is everyone has different interests, like the soccer or different affinities where they're uh, able to do things. And then I was thinking about the dance part of it too. Like some kids are, you know, I have two left feet. I don't think I could ever be a dancer. I'd trip over myself. But other, other kids and other people really are drawn to that. So within, within the conformity of what you do as a family, having the, the diversity as well. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool having the diversity for sure. I mean, yeah. you can't help it with that many people under one roof. Yeah, they're oh. they're just born with their own nature. Well, good. No, I really applaud that. It's it's a very cool thing. Um, I wanted to ask you about the record deal. You mentioned that that you had got a record deal and stuff. And then, typically with record companies, you know, when when you grow up and you you're playing from your heart and you're playing the music that you like, and, and as soon as you sign a record deal and things become more serious, right? Then you want to sell records and you want to go to tour and you've got to do a lot of things. Did you have a lot of pressure when that happened? Was there you know chasing hit songs no. or charts? Or? No, no. Nothing changed other than just more excitement, just really more excitement. Yeah. You know, I just continued on the path. No, I, I didn't have one of those yeah. rocker record deals that you hear about back from the 70s and 80s where people, you know, record companies made them do this and that. No, I was, I was on the, it was the kind of the end of that era and the beginning of more control with the artist. Okay, yeah, and which is fortunate for you because I've I've interviewed, of course, dozens and dozens of people and heard lots of horror stories about you know we need to sell records and now your genre is pretty specific so so you're gonna you're gonna obviously produce records within that genre but then of course it's still it's still a monetary business they still have to sell records and make sure that 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 the tours make sense and those kinds of things. Absolutely, but yeah. really records now, well. Yeah, like you said, I'm I'm not in mainstream pop world. I'm I'm a fiddler. So, yeah. you know, records used to sell great when they were out of my trunk back in the <laughs> early 90s. Yeah. That was awesome. Then you made money on on recordings. Now yes. recordings um really are more for they're a, a marketing tool, really. Yeah. Mhm. That's, that's that's what they serve. That's more the purpose they serve. You don't even sell hard discs anymore. It's all you know, Spotify and iTunes and that sort of thing. So, right. it's just a different world. Yeah. Just a different world, but they're a marketing tool to get your name out there and and you know um, propel your live touring more. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And then the other question—it seems seems like a dumb question—but how do you actually categorize your music now? Is it Celtic, East Coast, Irish, Scottish, Acadian? You know what, Danelle and I just finished our our, our recording uh, yesterday. We. Um, just finished that and it is i don't know what handle you'd put on it <laughs> now the previous recording i did was a traditional cape breton style record but but not quite kind of thing so it was but it was very rootsy like trad rootsy kind of thing and it was very simple it wasn't produced you know it was very simple production i should say just fiddling guitar and bass through the whole record yeah. This here is all over the place. I mean, I was doing a list of the musicians, and we've got horns on there, and oh. banjos, and synth pads, and programming, and wow. you know, all sorts of stuff. So it's really all over the map. Yeah. So I can't even put. I don't know what they're going to put on that. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. The record is called Canvas, and the reason why is because it's like we have a blank canvas. There are no rules. We're just gonna. We're just, we're just, we just decided, no, we're, there's no, there's no agenda. We're going to let the music talk and see where it goes. Yeah. Well, good for you. And, and of course you're yep. a fiddler, so it's going to be fiddle music. And, uh, 
I, I was going to ask you the difference between a violin and a fiddle, and, and the, the, the reason is because my grandpa was a fiddler, but some of the violinists, you know, can be a little snooty about being called a fiddler. So I, I like to ask the question, what's the difference between a violin and a fiddle? No difference between a violin and a fiddle. It's like Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. Same <laughs> person, same instrument. Uh, but, yeah, it's just whatever you like to call it. I've, I've not encountered that, although I'm aware of it. But my, my grandmother used to call the instrument a violin, always. Yes. And then I've heard people from the classical world, in fact, it's that Perlman said in an interview, you're not a real player until you can call your instrument a fiddle. Right. So, you know, yeah. it's just kind of, it's just lighthearted. Well, it's... it's <laughs> yeah, and I interviewed Lenny Solomon, and I'm sure you're aware of, of him. He had the oh, yeah. the show Bowfire, and, and um, he mentioned yeah. you, you guys, actually. He mentioned Ashley, and I think you as well, because we were talking about he wanted to bring the, the fiddle and the violin. He said the same thing, no difference. He said, and, he, and his dad, I think, played for the Toronto Symphony. So they were in a position where they were highly skilled, highly trained, symphony-level fiddler you know violinists and he he loved just playing rock and everything I and mean, he's he's done some incredible things and he talked about trying to bring the violin more into the mainstream and not having that sort of you know the violinist is the is the lead of the symphony he wanted to make it on the radio so people would enjoy the violin a lot more right right and that's why he, so did he achieve that uh, I think so. And with the Bowfire, yeah. I, I didn't know if you were familiar with the Bowfire, if you'd seen it, or if you had any connection I with him whatsoever. It, no. I mean, I've met Lenny, and actually his wife played cello on my DVD. Oh, very nice. Um, but yeah, definitely heard about Bowfire, but I never had the chance to see it. Yeah, well, he said the show was very successful, and, and it was a, a mainstream kind of show, so it wasn't for the people who, yeah. who particularly like a, a particular genre. He was trying to expand that. And then there was a lot of dance involved, and I wanted to ask you about that as well. How much does dance sort of play into what you do? Because it, it's mostly the music, I would assume, but there's there's dance bits as yeah. well, right? Dance bits, it doesn't really... I mean, yeah, it plays into the music in that... Part of our culture is piano playing, Gaelic singing, step dancing, fiddling. Yeah, there's, you know, there's a style of dance that goes with their music for sure. Yeah. But I mean, you can detach the two and still have them thrive. You know what I mean? Like, right. The, the music isn't dependent on it, but definitely there's there's a, you know, it's like the complete outfit when you see and you hear people talk Gaelic dance to dance, play the fiddle, and you know, it's like, oh, okay, it all connects. Do you still do some dance yourself? Yes, I do. Yeah. Not very much now that I have children who dance way better than I and <laughs> way more beautiful to look at and yeah. way more energy. So I just kind of they go out in our show and dance. So it's yeah, I did much see. more delightful. But no, I yeah. yeah, I did see some videos of that and it's very good. I just wondered how much that plays yeah. into it. But it's 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 all part of the package, right? Which is it's super yeah, cool. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then I wanted to ask you about your connection to Alison Krauss because I saw the the, the video. And then she sang Whiskey Lullabies, so she's, she's always got a special place in my heart because that's one of the most awesome songs ever. But she did Get Me Through December with you, and I saw the video, and it's just fantastic, really good. And what's your connection with her? Yeah, we um, we met when she was 16. I think we were both 16, oh, and wow. we were at the Vancouver Folk Festival, and she was in a fiddle workshop, and so was I. Oh. So I just never knew she sang until... Three years later, I was in college, and I heard this beautiful voice, and my friend said, that's Alison Krauss. And I said, wow. Alison Krauss is a fiddler, not a singer. No, she's a singer. And I'm like, no, I met her. She's a fiddler. Wow. No. And then, of course, we find out she's both. 
Um, and then maybe a few years after that, I had this song and hoped that she would sing on it. And so we connected with her and sure enough, and we did that duet together, which is featured on my CD in my hands and also on a, a collection CD of hers. Oh, wow. Oh, that's mm-hmm. neat. And, and yeah, a singer, I'll say. I mean, just gorgeous voice, like, like shockingly uh-huh. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then yep, you, she's a rare gem. Yeah. And well, that's great. So have you reconnected or are you going to do anything else with her at any point? Who knows? You know, this music world is a big circle. I always find that you come back around at some point with people. Yeah. And how did the uh, Santana tour hap- happen? How did that happen that you were opening for Santana? It was actually someone who couldn't make it. It was a last minute thing. And they asked if I would open for him. It was at a festival in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Nice. And I was at the festival anyway, but his opening slot, there were 80,000 people there. It was insane. It's the largest crowd I've ever played to. Neat. And yeah, it was amazing. And at the end of the performance, I broke a string. And Carlos said to me when I got off the stage, he said, you should do what B.B. King does and bring along a spare. (laughs) So anyway, (laughs) that was my connection with him. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had a connection with Johnny Reed as well. Did you play on some of his tunes? Yep, I played on his recording and did uh, a tour, <clears throat> fairly extensive Canadian tour with him six years ago. Nice. Okay. And then what did you do during COVID? Did you just stay home and record and, and homeschool the kids? Yep. Yep, exactly. We homeschool anyway, so there's yep. no change there. Um, but the recordings uh, that we have that's coming out in October, that was all done because of the gear that we purchased during COVID. The mm. whole record was done in our house. Okay. Well, very nice. And and the family's on it as well? No, no, it's okay. a Danelle Natalie CD. Okay. I was curious about that as far as the recording goes, because you play live, and then I thought, well, you're going to integrate that into some of your recording at some point? A little bit, yeah. Like, we did a Christmas, Celtic Family Christmas, and the kids that, are right? on there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. And then the one thing that struck me, too, is in, in sort of going through your, your story is how diverse the events are that you do. I mean, I do that too because we're in a show band, but you play theaters, you play, you did some TV stuff, you do outdoor community events, and then there's you just do the hall down the street. <laughs> yep, this is the spice of life. Variety yep. is the spice of life, absolutely. I love playing for massive stages, massive audiences, right to the, you know, just 50 people in a, in a little tiny venue somewhere. That's the beauty of it. It really is. And all of them have their charm. Yes, absolutely. As long as the crowd is enjoying it, it doesn't matter the numbers or the environment. It's just what they're giving to you, and you can feel it. Yeah. And, of course, now that you're a bit older and you've, you've been around for enough years, I guess when you were younger and you were touring, you did, you did lots of extensive tours around North America. And, and of course, you're paying yeah. your dues, so the, the money would have been a little tighter and the constant touring and paying expenses... And those kinds of things. You you paid your dues in that respect. Absolutely. I tell my, my daughters the days I used to go over to Europe and come back in the hole. <laughs> you know, I'd go over for a month and you'd lose more money than you made. So, oh yeah, I went through those days, tough touring times. Well, good. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the touring in the past and and uh, you know how sure. it, how it changes when you when you get older and and uh, you, you you've paid your dues. But the the thing about touring is that when you're when you're a recording act, you pay for everything, right? Like when we do a, a corporate event yeah. or something, they pay you a a wage and then they pay all the expenses on top of it. But when you're touring, you have to pay all of that, right? Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yeah, yes. people don't realize that. And that's why you come back from Europe in the hole. That's right. Yeah. 
Did you ever consider uh, moving to the U.S. or touring down there more extensively? Never. No. Never. No. I mean, oh gosh, I've toured the U.S. so extensively. I've toured the U.S. more than Canada wow. and Europe combined. Okay. That's mostly where I, I've toured, yeah. Yeah. And what about Nashville? Spent time there? Never Nashville. Never Nashville. Never got hmm. into that scene. Hmm. Just, I don't know, just agents never booked me. I don't know what it is, but yeah. But it seems like... I keep saying, you know... But recording there would be perfect for you, wouldn't it? There'd be some... I did record there, yes. Okay. Yeah, I recorded my In My Hand CD, uh, parts of it there. Um, actually, the Alison Krauss track was recorded in Nashville, too. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I thought that. Yeah, so... So what's your what's your future the next five ten years? More of the same? Going to do some more touring? Yes, lots of touring. You know, we we can't predict anything. The world is in a crazy state right now, and yeah. um, you know, like keep looking ahead. I mean, we made plans. You know, last fall, winter, previous fall, you kind of make plans, but then they change because of restrictions and all this. So we have our plans. We have sixty shows, I think, on the books for the fall. Oh wow! And into January and then American tour in, two, in February and all those sorts of plans. But who knows? I mean, like I said, we've canceled stuff we've, we've had before and we'll just see. We'll just hope for the best. Many thanks to Natalie McMaster for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her long and varied career in the music business. More information is available at natalieanddonnell.com. It also is uh, directed from nataliemcmaster.com. And Facebook, she's very active on there as well, under Natalie McMaster. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And you can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. And we also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Hill.